Please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. It's good to be up here. Um, I was talking to Jake Stokite. Uh, I was just encouraged and challenged by his message last week. Um, and we were talking, though, that he said he had never heard me preach. And uh, I was thinking that uh, maybe for the m- most of you, if you've been here for four years or under, you've probably never heard me preach. And in fact, if you've heard oh, one of my, uh, a Weeby speak, it's actually been probably my son. So Jake actually said he's heard uh, Gage sp- preach more than, uh, more than me. Uh, but he's in the deep south right now, so he's not an option. But maybe after I'm done, you might be wishing he, he was. But uh, anyway, the, and we did not coordinate our messages, but it was, it was interesting that uh, the application of this text is the same. It's to love one another. But it's a very different way to get there. So let me pray, and we'll get started. Lord, your word says that you enrich us in all wisdom, in all knowledge, and in all speech. And so I just pray that you would do that. You know it's my heart. um, That people would be lifted up and encouraged. Lord, I pray that you would help me to be clear. I would hold fast your word. Lord, so I just pray that if there is something that I say that is unhelpful or confusing, that you would just cause it to be forgotten from people's minds. And if there's something that is from you, that um, you are trying to speak to them, that you would burn it deep into their hearts. Um, and that's only a work that you can do. So I pray that you would work in, through my words in the hearts of these brothers and sisters here in Christ. Amen. <clears throat> All right, I'd like to read Second uh, Samuel 23, starting in verse 13. Um, starting in verse 13, it says this, And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley, valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and, of the, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, who was the son of Zeruiah, was the chief of the thirty, and he wielded the spear against three hundred men and killed them and won the name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabziel, a doer of great deeds. <clears throat> he struck down two Ariels of Moab, and he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on the day when the snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down with him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. 
These things Benaiah, these things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. But he was renowned among the thirty. But he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. And then it goes on to name the other thirty, or th- uh, the group of thirty. Now it's interesting if you look here. Um, <coughs> well, for, first I want to say. Um, <coughs> One of the most important lectures I ever listened to started this way. The man said, today I want to talk to you about devotion. I thought, well, that's an interesting start of a message. Today I want to talk to you about devotion. And in in fact, it wasn't a lecture that I actually attended in person. It wasn't even a lecture that um, I even knew the professor. It was actually about 10 years ago or 11 years ago. I don't know exactly the time. And, uh, <clears throat> but if you, if you know me, you know I graduated college long before that. But there was, a, uh, there was a, a man, his name was Edmund Clowney. He was actually a pastor, and he was giving a seminary class along with Tim Keller. I was really appreciated the work of Tim Keller and, and Edmund Clowney. They've both gone on. Uh, they've passed away. But, uh, and they were talking about, to, these, to these men who were going to go on into the ministry. And he said... Today, I'm going to talk to you about devotion. And then he took this text, and he expounded it, and he showed the realities and the truths of this text. And it stuck with me for 10 years, or 11 years. Um, I don't have any envisions that uh, you guys will remember this message for 10 or 12 years, but I do want to give him credit that he exposed this text to me and really expounded the Old Testament in a way that has really changed and transformed the way that I see uh, the Bible. And um, it just, his, what he did, and I will try to do, is I'll show the power of devotion and what can be achieved when someone is devoted to a great cause. Now, Second Samuel starts and finishes, in a way, much like First Chronicles. First uh, Chronicles talks about the life and death of David, it starts actually with Adam, or First Chronicles starts with Adam and Chronicles all the way to David, and then it gives the life of David, and then he dies. First, Second Samuel starts the same way. It's actually when he's a king, and then in verse uh, chapter twenty-two, if you look back a couple chapters, is chapter twenty-two is David's song of deliverance, and then he starts chapter twenty-three. It says this: If you have, uh, if there's a header on your on, in your Bible, it says this: the last words of David. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, anointed by the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist. Then he goes on, verse 2, The the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The Lord of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, The one who rules justly over men, ruling over the fear of man, he dawns on them like the morning light, the light of the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout on the earth. <clears throat> and so you would think, if you were just reading this, if you get to verse 7, maybe if, if you were reading them on your phone, you would think, okay, that's the end of Second Samuel. But that's not quite the case. There's all these verses, verse 8 until the end of chapter 39, <clears throat> or chapter 23, and then 24. And so if you look and you are reading through Second Samuel, you would realize that these verses are not really chronologically because it says, here's the last words of David. 
And then there's kind of like this epilogue or this uh, kind of this appendix. Then these, these, these verses are part of that. And at first it would seem very, very confusing. Um, but I, I would like to liken it to maybe a movie, a really good movie. Maybe you've seen one where <clears throat> there's this movie and all of a sudden it seems to end, but then there's this, at the very end, there's maybe a one-minute scene <clears throat> that seems to be very random or out of place. But then you're like, oh, that's weird. But then you think about it. You think about it a little more, and you're like, oh, that, oh, that kind of makes sense. And then not only that, you're like, oh. Once you understand that little epilogue, that little one-minute clip, maybe the entire movie is kind of transformed and looks totally different because of how you've seen and how you interpret that last um, that last one-minute clip. And I would say the, these verses are the, very much the same way. There is a point that I think the writer is trying to get to, that if you see the, the point in chap- the end of chapter 23 and the point in chapter 24, the entire, chap- entire book of 2 Samuel doesn't quite, has a little bit different look that um, you, would, you wouldn't see at first. And you interpret all of Second Samuel in that way. And so I want to give uh, th- three accounts of devo- devotion. There's three accounts that I want to look at. But before that, there is, um, in verse 8 to verse uh, 12, there's an account of these three men. <clears throat> and uh, I just, they're, they're just too good of stories. It doesn't quite tie into my message, but there's, a, there's a, these three men, and the stories are pretty amazing, and I want to just point, read them and make a quick point. It says this. These are the men, names, verse, starting in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men of David, that, whom David had. Joshua Basabeth, the tech, uh, I don't know, tech He was chair, chair, chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 men whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoyai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who had, were gathered where, there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew, and he rose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned only to, after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. So as we'll see, there's David's mighty men. There's these three, and then there's these other 30. Um, And these three... I just want to make a quick point that um, they did some great feats. Um, I, I, was, I thought maybe of, I don't know if you ever read accounts of uh, people who have won the Medal of Honor, right? You, it's almost where there's, they're doing what they've been trained to do, and then all of a sudden they just go above and beyond what they've never been taught to do. Maybe, I don't know, I've never been in the military. But they, they almost do like this superhuman thing. You're like, how, does this, how is this even possible? And this is what these three did. They, have a na- they attained to an incredible feats, unlike any of the other men. But I want to show you. Look, in, in both accounts, the second and the third, it says this. The Lord brought about a great victory in that day. And then in verse uh, 12, it says, And the Lord worked a great victory. 
says that the same thing over in First Chronicles 11, where it's a, another account, and he says this about the Lord saved them by a great victory. So here were these three men. And there's a simple fact that the Lord, the Lord is working. Great feats can be accomplished. But I want to look at our first point. First, number one, extreme devotion, starting in verse 13. Here's these 30 men. So there, the, David is at the beginning time of his kingship, so it's early in his kingship. He's heading out in a cave, and look at the longing of David. He says this, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. <clears throat> and so they're in this stronghold, as you can see. So they had to clearly had to have some sort of a water source there. They couldn't have just been, it couldn't have been like, oh, I need water. They had to be, um, they were in this stronghold, they were in a cave, so it had to have some water, but it <clears throat> may not have been good water. But Bethlehem was David's hometown. So maybe he said, he remembers this one well, and he says, this was really good water. Oh, that I could have this water from this well. Or maybe it was just kind of, he was feeling nostalgic. Maybe some of you from, aren't from around these parts. You're from other parts of the country. And when you go back home, you're like, oh, I got to go to this haunt or, or this, you know, this restaurant. This is where we had the best burgers ever, you know, or, or whatever. Maybe you, people come, when you have siblings who come here, they're like, oh, I got to go to this restaurant. And it's, there's, it's only in Rockford. Maybe that was it. But I think there's more to this. He's saying... Man, I'm the king of Israel, and I can't even go to my own hometown. I'm separated. The Philistines, our arch enemy, has divided us, and there's this garrison, and I can't even go to my hometown. Oh, that I could have Bethlehem. You know, there was this Davidic covenant uh, in 2 Samuel 7, if you go back and you look, and David promised that, or God promised David that he would have an everlasting covenant. And God's saying, or David saying, where is that promise? Well, look at the devotion of these three. Now, the identity of these three men, it's not, these aren't the original first three. They're part of this 30 that's listed afterwards um, in verses 24 through 39. So we don't know who they are, but they, um, they see a need and they go. I was th- thought at first about maybe... I'm sure you've probably listened to or read it, and maybe you did in uh, your great, in high school. There was the, the Battle of the Light Brigade. Brigade. You know, there was a, a story about by William, uh, no, it was by Henry Wadworth, Wadsworth Longfellow. It, was a, it recounts the heroism of the Br- British Light Cavalry undertaken against Russian forces during the Battle, battle of ba- Balaclava in the Crimean, Crimean War. And the 600 troops of the brigade followed ambiguous orders to charge a heavily defended position through what they knew they had little chance of survival. Maybe you remember, I still remember the first four stanzas. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward into the valley of death rode the 600. And it was really, it was a a tribute to these 600, but it was really kind of a military critique of that the, the, the orders were horrible. But this wasn't that, really, if you look at it. <clears throat> this was not in order. David didn't give an order here. He didn't even ask for volunteers. He's like, hey, who's going to go with me? Or who will go? And this wasn't like a passive-aggressive re- request either. You know, you, oh boy, I wonder, wish somebody would go get me some water. You can see this because of how he 
his response at the end. But no, this was just a longing for this water. And look at how ridiculous this was. Consider, this wasn't like a thousand men went and only three made it back. Or even the 30 mighty men went and these three were able to get the water and come back. No, it was only three men against a garrison of Philistines. Right? All, all the Philistines had to do was aim or do something to three men. Three men were all the... It was three against, I don't know how many, at least probably a hundred. But they were not successful. Not only that, think about this. It wasn't like that they did some advanced scouting. It doesn't say, well, you know... David said this, and then they went out and they kind of looked and saw where the Philistines were. No, it's like they just kind of went out and went. More than that, um, scholars don't quite know exactly where the cave of Adullam was because Adullam can mean maybe just a stronghold or a safe place. But uh, the kind of the general consensus is that this cave, this, uh, this cave of Adullam was probably 12 to 13 miles away from this well. So... These men had to essentially run a marathon going there and back, 26 miles, to do this. And you can know that it was a fortified well. Edmund Clowney says this. He says, They had to go right to the gate of Bethlehem. The gate was always the command post at an ancient city. That is where the generals would be. That is where the captains of the host would be assembled near the well in Bethlehem. It is roughly analogous to saying, Go get me a drink of water from the cooler in the Kremlin. Now, that's kind of a dated quote that was back in 1982. But um, this well was heavily fortified by the Philistines. But I can only imagine these three, they get this mischievous look maybe in their eyes, and they say, kind of look at each other, maybe come into agreement, and let's go. So they did. They grab a clay pot, and they make it through the Philistines. And now, you know, this... Again, this is water from a well. So this isn't water that, you know, you could just turn on the tap or was readily available. It wasn't a pool. Somebody had to draw it. So I don't know if there was somebody there who helped them or two fought while one drew. But they fought. And maybe the hardest thing is, you know, they've actually made it to the well. And now they have to go all the way back, right? And so everybody knows they're maybe that they're coming back. And they not only that, but they have this clay pot full of water that they can't spill, and they're running 13 more miles. <laughs> they can't drink the water, or they don't want to drink the water. They want to give it to David. And, but look at the devotion of these men. <clears throat> so these men, the, you can see here that the Lord is working in these men to, because of their great devotion for David. Do you have devotion like this? You know, I thought oftentimes at our dinner table, somebody is actually up and somebody else asks that person for water and it's like, oh my goodness, this big onerous task to actually pick the person's cup up and go get some water, right? But these men, these three men, <clears throat> at the risk of their own lives, go and get the water for David. And then look at the devotion of David. It's, it's this point here that the response that many commentators are split or there's some, some type of difficulty, but I think it's very clear here. That they, what does David do? He takes the, the water and he pours it out. Now, some will say, maybe this is just, 
David, you know, he's in the past. If you were to read first through Second Samuel, if you if you go to verse chapter one, he kind of has a history of making unprecedented or unexpected decisions. Right the, in chapter one, there's uh, the Amalekite that comes to him, and he says, "Hey, Saul and his son are dead." And David said, "Well, how do you know?" He said, "Well, because I killed him." And so he thinks he's bringing him good news. And here's the crown of Saul in verse, uh, in verse uh, 6. And David said, by your own words, you will be killed. And he has that man killed. Or if you go to 2 Samuel 4, uh, 4 chapter 4, there's another son of Saul. His name is Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth is killed and beheaded by two brothers, Rechab and Banna. And they travel all night to bring David the good news, right? There's, they've killed Ishbosheth. They've, they've cut off his head, and so they, haul, they go all night. What devotion to bring him his head. And David said, by your own actions, you will be killed. They, and so they've... And then the lastly, in 2 Samuel 18, if you know, another, it's a son of David this time, uh, Absalom. Absalom... Is, uh, is killed. He's the one who called, caused David to flee the, the, nation, or the city of, of, his, of Jerusalem. And he comes back and there's word that uh, in, in chapter 18 that Absalom dies. And what is, they think that they're bringing good news to David. And what does he do? He weeps over the death of Absalom. Well, that's, I think there's more to it than that. See, he's not... Um, this isn't just some irrational, some unpredictable behavior, but rather he says this. Um, he pours it out and he says, Far be it from me, O Lord. In verse uh, 17. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. And these things the three mighty men did. You know, so look at the servant leadership here. I mean, think of the leader that David must have been. If you look back in 1 Samuel 22, these are the people that came to David at the beginning of his kingdom, his kingship. It says, And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became the commander of him. I mean, just think of how difficult, if you know people who are difficult, who are in debt, who are in distress, or bitter in soul. How difficult is that to lead and to, to get them to go? But David was able to do that. Not only that, think about this. David's chief arch enemy, Saul, by Saul's old calling, his son, Jonathan, he was able to be, Jonathan was devoted to David. For David, these, these men were more important than his thirst. What a wonderful leader David was. He recounted God's covenant also. He says, I'm not going to take advantage of these men's devotion. But he sees this water and he says, it's too holy for me. I can't do it. I have to pour it out. I can only give it to God. And he knows that God would fulfill his covenant because this water was brought back. So he pours it out. Can't you just see? There's, he, pours out, he takes a little bit of the water. He pours it out. And it goes into the dirt and the rock kind of disappears on a hot day. Well, I don't recommend that that is how you respond. I thought about, um, I had a college roommate one time, and I was having a horrible day, and I was just talking about, uh, I need something to eat, and um, 
very, very shortly after he kind of disappears. And I actually looked um, this week and I charted. Um, now he didn't, we, li- we were in school at a very posh uh, Chicago suburb, so this wasn't, this wa- it wasn't like he was going through the Philistines, but, um, but he was about 280 pounds and six feet. He was like a, built like a bowling ball. And so walking was not um, a, a really activity that he'd love to do. Um, by any means, but he saw that there, there was a need, and he walked 43 minutes. Well, it probably took him all, it says, Google says 43 minutes. It probably took him 50 minutes to go get me food, and at the time, I was uh, consuming about between 9,000 and 10,000 calories a day, so it was a big meal that he brought me back. I don't remember what it was, but it was a, con- a considerable amount of food, and so he brought it back to me, and um, I was just overwhelmed. You know, so an hour and a half later, he comes back with this bag of food from a fast food restaurant. Um, now, what would be, I was just oh, impressed upon his sacrificialness, and if you know this man, he, he, that's, he would do all the time. Um, but my response would not have been to pour out the drink and throw the, the food in the garbage, right? I recommend that if somebody shows you this sacrifice to you and this uh, amount of love that you would be grateful and just, you know, try to show your appreciation for them. But, um, but I don't know if you've experienced that. It was an incredible humbling experience for that. But this is a little different. David, I think, um, the, I, I struggled with this. I, I was like, well, yeah, it's still really wasteful. All these men brought this water for him to drink. But I think the correct response was what David did. He sees that it is holy. He sees that it was at the risk of these men's life, and he could not drink it. Well, I want to look at the second instance of extreme devotion here in verses 24 through 39. I'm not going to read all of them because there's a number of tongue twisters in here, but let me just start um, at the end here um, in verse 33. What you'll see here is, if you do read through, through here and you look at where these men have are from, there's... Um, they're from all over Israel, what's interesting. And we don't know, don't know anything about most of these men. But there is one that we do know of. So starting in verse 33, it says, The Shammah the Herorite, Aham the son of Sherarah the Herorite, Eliphalet the son of Asabai of Maka, Eliam the son of Ahathophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Parai of the Arabanite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadiite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nehari of Biroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Uriah the Ithite, Gerub the Ithrite, Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. So there is these mighty men all over. But there was one word, or there was one name that you maybe recognized, maybe not, you have been, if you were reading from through Second Samuel, you would recognize one name. And that, that one name, the whole complexion of this text is transformed. It was the last name, Uriah the Hittite. Maybe you know that story. Maybe you know of Uriah the Hittite. I know when I was first reading through this, or when I was listening to Edmund Cloudy read through this, my jaw figuratively dropped Uriah the Hittite. You see, the story is in chapter 11. If you go back to chapter 11, let me remind you. 
It was David, you know, and often we look at through this chapter 11 through the context of David or Bathsheba. But think about it for a minute of the devotion that Uriah shows. See, David is at his house and he sees Bathsheba bathing and so he calls for her and they commit adultery and some weeks or months later she comes and says that she's pregnant. And so David brings Uriah back. And look at the devotion to David. In verse 7, he says this. Uh, maybe he, Uriah doesn't know why he came back, but Uriah comes to him, and David asks how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. But Uriah went out of the king's house, but what does he do? He just sleeps at the, at the, the door of David's house. Only a couple months ago, his wife was in with David at that house, and he would not even go outside it. He would, he would just sleep at the door of his house. Well, the next day, David tries again. He says, maybe if I get him drunk, he'll go to his own house. But no, Uriah doesn't. He gets drunk, but he, he lies on the couch with the servants of the Lord, and he did not go down to his own house. I mean, look at the devotion of this mighty man, this mighty man, Uriah, he wouldn't even go to his own house. I mean, that's a, to be quite honest, that's a devotion I don't think would be the case for myself. But he was in the army of David, and he was on duty, and he was not going to go, go, go into personal pleasures when he was in the duty and the army of, the, of David. He could not go down to his own house. You know, and so what does David do? He goes and he gives Uriah the letter to go send back to Joab. To, uh, that's his own death warrant. You know, nothing is, when you hear stories of war or of brutal dictators, to me, nothing is more despicable, I guess, than if you hear about this dictator killing their own people. Right? Well, that is what, isn't that what David did? He sent, and he, he tells Joab to kill his own, per, his own mighty man, Uriah. And so think about this too, perhaps. So what happens is Uriah is called to be in this battle. Maybe much more like the light brigade, actually, because they're supposed to go, and there, there was these men that rise up, and so Uriah and these other men go all the way and they, they force him back all the way to the, to the wall of the city. And at that point, Uriah is killed. And I thought about that. We don't know for sure why Uriah is on the list of the mighty men, but it could have been his actions that led to his very death. Knowing that he, perhaps, he was a mighty man, he probably knew that what he was doing, his charge, was probably going to result in death. And it might have been that charge that made him on this list. Of the mighty men. Well, David doesn't look like such a great leader anymore, does he? He's not such a great king. And still, if you aren't convinced, maybe if you, uh, to drive home the point, there's another chapter, the end of the chapter of the second Samuel, it's David's census. To, to drive home the shortcomings of David, the entire chapter 
Um, many commentators say that the, he should not have done a, a census. Probably, they not everybody's sure, but probably because he should have been relying on the Lord for his, the people in his army. But he decides he's going to take the census of all of his people. But he, look at verse 4. David, um, Joab says, no, king, don't do that. But in verse 4, the king's word prevailed against Joab and his commanders of his army. So here it is, David against all of his commanders, all of his army, and they, they're saying, no, we don't want to do this. Don't do this, David. But they are devoted to him, and they follow through. And so his devotion, look how long it takes them, too. In verse 8, it says it took them nine months and 20 days. Here's these men, this entire army, traipsing all around this fruitful or fruitless expedition all around Israel and Judah for, for how long? For almost a year, nine months, 20 days, to just count people, to count men. Counted 800,000. How long would it count, take to count 800,000 men of Israel? 500,000 men of Judah? So they counted 1.3 million men. And then he he's realizes his sin, and so the Lord says, all right, here's three options. You can have three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your foes, or three days of pestilence. And so David says, I'm gonna, I'll fall upon the mercy of God. I'll, I'll, I'll pick the three days. And the Lord kills 70,000 men in those three days. Now David, at the end, he builds an altar, and he acknowledges his sin, but here are these thirty, these 70,000 men betrayed by their friend. Not only their friend, but who? The king. So their devotion, these devotion, what did, what did the devotion to, of Joab and the commander of his army, what did, they, what did it yield? Seven, the loss of 70,000 of their own countrymen. <clears throat> See, I would argue that the point of this text is to show the devotion, incredible devotion, but of, to a king who had some serious feelings, killed his own people, caused the death of 70,000 of his own men. But there was a king who was to come later that we should turn our attention to, and that is to Jesus, Right? That is the one that we should follow because he is perfect in every way. But before that, I think it is important to, as we turn, before we turn our attention, I want to just briefly talk about another person who had extreme devotion. But it was a very misguided devotion. That in the disciple Peter. You know, Jesus had his mighty men, his disciples. Maybe the mightiest of all was Peter. In fact, he did all these great feats. In fact, he was the only one who walked on water, right? And if you look at it in John, he was the, the one that was called out of the boat, and he walked on water. And then in, verse, in chapter 13, um, G- Jesus says, I'm going, and where you go, I, you, or where I'm going, you can't follow. But Peter says, hey, I'll die for you. I'm so devoted for you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. And I think he was, he was being honest, because if you remember... Think of when Jesus was arrested in John 18. It says this, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, 
Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? See, Peter thought he was going to be a military leader. He had this misguided idea of who Jesus was, of what, the, what Jesus was standing for, and he was wrong. And so the question is, why did Peter deny Jesus three times? Well, I think it wasn't, it wasn't because he just, when it came time, he just didn't have the, the wherewithal to, to do what he needed to do to stand up. I think it was he was disillusioned because he was willing to die for, for Jesus the minutes before. But because he was so disillusioned, where is this military leader that he lost his way? And I would say that I, there's so many times I talk to somebody and I, they say, well, I just follow Jesus. Okay, well, and then I ask, well, what does that mean? And then I realize that what they're saying of who this Jesus is is way different than the Jesus that we know in these scriptures. So who is Jesus, the true king, the right king? Well, here is Jesus. The sin of David caused the death of Uriah and 70,000 of his own countrymen. But it was the sin of Jesus' enemies, those who were far off, who caused his death. See, David betrayed those who were loyal to him, his mighty men, but Jesus will never betray us. Jesus was betrayed, but betrayed by one of his followers. When the true king came, everyone who should have been completely loyal to him disappeared and were diverted, deserted, all failed. In 1 Samuel, there was the requirements of what was going to happen with the earthly king. And David, or God said, he, or, uh, Eli was saying, he said, he will, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks. They will take the, he will take a tenth of your grain. He will, take, he will end your vineyards and give it to your officers and your servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. That is the demands of the Israelite king. But the true king says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Richard Pratt says, Christ fulfills all the hopes of the Davidic family. He brings the blessings of God's kingdom to all those who serve him faithfully. Christ alone brings his kingdom, full kingdom blessings. And he is the last step in the restoration of God's image. Don't lose the sight of this. Jesus is the one who saw our need for living water. He was the one who went through the forces, the evil forces. He was the one who went to Bethlehem to get water. But it was in the form of being a babe. He was the one, his drink offering was of his own blood that he poured out on the cross. Christ was the perfect drink offering and his blood was poured out for us. Here is complete, perfect devotion. Do you fail in your devotion? Christ's devotion was perfect. That same devotion is the devotion he has for you in heaven right now, praying for his brothers and sisters. So this is the Christ. Follow this Christ, not your misguided idea of Christ. And so lastly, we come to our devotion. My question to you, what are you devoted for? See, you will be devoted to something. You will follow something. You could say, I could tell, I could ask you, what is is what you are most devoted for? And I could say, well, just don't do that. Well, Okay, well, you, if you shouldn't be devoted to that thing, you're going to find something else. We are 
people who have desires and are devoted to things. But the lesson here is if you are devoted to things in this earth, if you are devoted to a king like David, an earthly king, they will let you down. You will be failed by them. Maybe you're devoted to your work, a team, a sports team. Maybe you're devoted to a good thing. Maybe a spouse. Maybe to this church. Maybe something else. But David Paul Tripp says this, Remember the biblical principle of idolatry. Desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when you desire, when that desire becomes a ruling thing. Let me read, read that again. He says, Remember that biblical principle of idolatry. Desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. I think that's true. And so we, should, we need to be devoted to things, but our ultimate devotion, our ultimate allegiance needs to be to the one who will never fail us, to, to God. And so how are we devoted to him? Well, number one, you can never repay God, Right? Some people say, oh, God did all this for me, and so I'm going to be devoted for him. I'm going to get up at 6 o'clock. That's how I'm going to show my devotion, and I'm going to pray for an hour. Well, okay, well, why not 545? Why, if you're really devoted, why not 545? Okay, I'm going to get up at 545. Okay, well, if you're getting up at 445, you should get up at 530. If you're really devoted, you need to be up at 530 and praying to God. We can never repay God for his work on the cross. Romans 11, or who has given the gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him or, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. God says in Job 41, Who has get first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So how do we love God? Well, we shouldn't really need instruction. If you're devoted to something, like if you're devoted to a sports team, I shouldn't say, well, okay, now you have to watch at least 50% of their game every week because that's what you need to do. Or if you're in a relationship with somebody, I don't need to say, well, you need to text at least once a day. And no, if you're devoted to something or someone, you should need no command or requirement. But... I will give you one point of application. And it's really more of a litmus test, maybe an indicator. Are you devoted to the Lord? And it's this. It's the same command that Jesus actually gave Peter. You remember, as I just shared, Peter was the one who deserted Jesus after he thought he was going to be this great military leader. And Jesus comes back to Peter and John, and he says, Do you love me? Peter says, yeah, you know, I do. He said, feed my sheep. He asked him again, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he says, feed my sheep. So how do we love God? We love his family. We love his brothers and sisters. In John 13, again, he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know this well. I'll read the extended passage of Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with, it, with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations. 
and he will separate people one from another at the shepherd, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but on the goats, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the fountain, foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger, or welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And don't, don't miss this. And the king, king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of my brothers, you did it for me. See, we don't need to get God water he doesn't need anything, but he does say, get it for my brothers. And it will flow out of your love for God. Now some may say, well, <laughs> the brothers and sisters in Christ, they're difficult. Well, you don't think Jesus knew that? Just look at the disciples. Were they not difficult? But he still says, feed my sheep. So my exhortation to you is to be mighty. Be mighty in the Lord like the three mighty men. But too often, we are feeble and we fail. My exhortation to you is to be great, show extreme devotion. But often, we're nobodies. Oftentimes, we fail. Our hearts desire other things. Look to the Christ who sanctifies. Again, Edward Clowney says this. Edmund Clowney says this. Jesus takes the water of your devotion and pours it out at the Father's throne. He takes your sacrifice for him and offers it up as a sweet smell before the throne of Christ, of grace. So as we do that, let's also look for the coming day, from that, for that new heavens, the new earth, when we will worship the true king in perfect righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that we would be men and women, that though we fail, though we falter, that you would take all of our efforts and you would sanctify them. I do pray that we would love one another. Because we are devoted to you, because we love you, because we seek after you, we love your brothers and sisters. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.